This is Brad Warren, host of the Changing Waters podcast on American Shoreline Podcast Network. Very glad to have with us today Greg Rao, one of the leading lights of research on carbon dioxide removal, particularly in the ocean. And uh, Greg, I'm going to ask you to uh, let's start where we are. Um, it, as we speak, I believe you're planning the first pilot plant that I know of to split seawater, extract hydrogen, and uh, also uh, you're going to be generating some carbonate byproducts that might help to remove carbon dioxide pollution and maybe even to remediate ocean acidification. Before we go farther, have I got that part right? Uh, yeah, more or less. Uh, we are planning, uh, uh, we're actually in the design phase right now of uh, designing a pilot plant that will demonstrate this uh, this technology. Um, it will be on the east coast of Canada in Halifax. We've recently moved our lab uh, to Halifax and uh, we'll will happen there on the East Coast. Uh, probably 2022 is the target for uh, actually building the pilot plant, but we do have some design uh, things to sort out uh, before we actually uh, break ground. Uh, and you probably want to know how this works, so I'm happy to, if you want to, uh, to describe uh, what exactly we're doing. Yeah, uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us about the company, Planetary Hydrogen, right? I want to hear. Yeah, right. Yeah. Hear yeah. So yeah. So what does hydrogen have to do with uh, with the ocean and uh, carbon? So um, yeah. Well, some years ago, I uh, got this idea that electrochemistry could be useful for consuming CO two, and the the idea there is that when you electrolyze a salt solution, you do a bunch of things. One is you generate hydrogen, uh, you generate oxygen, you generate acid, and you generate a base. And normally the acid and base just recombine within the cell and you, you're just doing this for, for hydrogen and oxygen reasons. And of course, this is the basis for green hydrogen that you've probably heard about it. If you use renewable electricity, non-fossil electricity to power this, then you've got a, a low carbon or zero carbon emissions hydrogen source, which is obviously could be very valuable as a fuel and energy store, et cetera. So, so building on that idea, uh, I thought, well, why not utilize this hydroxide, this base, chemical base uh, that's being generated and otherwise just being neutralized by the acid? If we can separate the acid and the base, we could use the base to consume CO2. Uh, uh, hydroxide is the particular base. And when you expose that to air, it, it starts absorbing atmospheric CO2. And in fact, it Hydroxide is the, the basis for a number of commercial scale air capture processes that are being explored um, in Canada and elsewhere. So uh, why not uh, use that, uh, this hydroxide that we're, we're generating along with the hydrogen to do air, air capture and uh, therefore have a negative carbon emissions hydrogen process. It's not just neutral uh, neutral emissions or zero emissions. We've actually uh, now converted to something that consumes CO2 in the course of uh, generating hydrogen. 
So the next uh, issue is, well, how exactly do we absorb the CO2 and where do we do that? And one thought is, why not put this in the ocean? The ocean is the largest air contactor on the Earth's surface. And we know that ocean alkalinity plays a big role in, in the carbon balance between the air and the atmosphere. And so by adding a little more alkalinity in the form of hydroxide, this we could actually turn the ocean into a, uh, we could actually increase the absorption of CO2 that the ocean is already doing otherwise. Uh, but do it in a safe way. That is, we're converting the CO2. We're not just putting CO2 in the ocean and acidifying it. We're actually consuming it and making an alkaline form of carbon that can be beneficial for countering ocean acidification. So if we do all this, and if we're able to do all this, then we have a carbon-negative hydrogen system that uh, also utilizes the ocean and hopefully benefits the ocean because it adds alkalinity and helps counter ocean acidification while we're consuming the CO2. So that's kind of the long and the short of it. I didn't say anything about the acid, but uh, we're for now we're hoping we have uh, industrial off-takers of the acid that we're going to produce. But in the long term, we do this at large scales, we'll probably outstrip the uh, demand for, for acid and we'll have to... Uh, think of other ways of safely consuming it. And one way to do that is by reacting with minerals where we just uh, react the acid with, uh, with alkaline minerals, which are very abundant on the Earth's surface and just make benign salts. Mm -hmm. So that, that in a nutshell is, is what we're up to. Right, right. And if I understand right, you're one of a number of ventures that are uh, exploring this potential. Uh, this is now a field, not just a uh, kind of a wildcat research subject. You know, you and others have been studying at Livermore and the University of California and other university mm -hmm. labs. Well, certainly uh, carbon dioxide removal has become a, a very hot topic. And there are a variety of ways, of course, of doing uh, air capture uh, and evolving biology, uh, chemistry, geochemistry, or all of the above. It's uh, there are a variety of ways that you can harness nature, or modify nature, or engineer nature to to do this process. And as we know, uh, this is this is uh, not just an academic exercise, but it is now essential that we figure out how to do this because we've, we're beyond the point where emissions reduction is going to save the day in terms of uh, uh, stabilizing and reducing atmospheric CO2 and, and climate change. So it, it's now become, uh, you know, uh, along with the emissions reduction, a really essential part of our thinking how, of how we're going to manage atmospheric CO2. So yes, there's a variety of technologies, uh, not so much electrochemistry, although there's some other electrochemical ideas uh, but a whole variety of, as I say, engineered, natural, chemistry, biology, geochemistry um, approaches that uh, are being very intensely looked at right now. Right. I, I wonder if you can give us some definitions for folks who aren't already deep in these weeds. Uh, there are there's some terms that uh, get thrown around a lot, and uh, maybe some of our listeners won't know them. Uh, so can you define, to start, the difference between carbon removal or carbon dioxide removal and carbon capture and sequestration? They sound really similar, but there is some difference. I wonder if you can clarify that. 
Yeah, it can be confusing for those that are that are just getting into it. But um, those of us who have been in the field, carbon dioxide removal has come to mean a removal from the atmosphere. That is, you have legacy CO2 from, from our prior emissions. That's why the atmospheric CO2 level is so high, because we've added all this carbon. And it's, under natural circumstances, it very, only very slowly is removed from the atmosphere. It, it can't will be removed over the next uh, you know, 10, 100,000 years. All, all of the carbon that we've put in there will will be removed eventually by by natural processes but it takes a very long time and uh, there's a lot of damage that can be done in the meantime so carbon dioxide removal is really looking for ways that we can really accelerate this removal and thus not subject the earth to this these high levels of co2 that uh, are so impactful so carbon dioxide removal is pulling it from the air yes that's i mean the, the, the there is also uh, another angle that isn't as widely discussed, but is also relevant here, and that is reducing natural emissions. There are there are some technologies that actually don't remove CO2 from air, but they they consume locally high CO2 levels, and thus that are naturally high, and uh, therefore um, sort of inhibit some of the natural CO2 emissions to 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 the atmosphere and there are two places where that can happen in soils which is a you know significant source of co2 there are certain treatments you can put in soils that reduce the co2 emissions and sometimes that is also referred to as carbon dioxide removal although in, in that case you're really just removing the local high locally high co2 from the from uh, from getting into the atmosphere, and you're not actually operating directly on on atmospheric CO2. Right, right. Uh, and, and then you would distinguish both of these approaches from carbon capture and sequestration. Can you, can you define what that is? Yeah, that has come to mean uh, uh, reducing emission, uh, CO2 emissions from anthropogenic sources, or particularly industrial sources, point sources like power plants, cement plants, uh, those sorts of things. And so uh, carbon capture and storage has, uh, is, a, is a technology that's applied there. It's specific, it's a technology that specifically concentrate, captures and concentrates CO2 from point sources and makes a concentrated CO2 that then has to be stored someplace, typically underground, but there's now some a lot of interest in how you might use that in various industrial processes. And also you have to keep that from then going back into the atmosphere. So, so whatever your use is, it has to be uh, sequestered from the atmosphere for hopefully forever, but uh, there in some cases it can be released before forever. And then both of these, I think you would distinguish from what for many of us was the traditional focus of climate change and ocean acidification efforts to, to, to mitigate this problem. It was emission reduction. And I, I, I wonder if you can talk for a moment about how difficult that has proven to be. And if it, if it were easy, we'd be doing that and, and that alone. It would work. But it's not, yeah, well, it's not so easy. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell us about what's happened there. Yeah, well, to be 
to be honest, actually, CCS or carbon capture and storage is an emissions reduction process. And it's, a you know, you simply attach that to a point source and consume some or all of the CO2 that's, that would otherwise go to the atmosphere. So that's, that is an emissions reduction strategy. But obviously, there are other strategies, we could be more efficient in how we use energy, we could uh, perform more work per unit of, of energy that we uh, consume and per unit, therefore per unit of uh, CO2 that's emitted from natural gas or coal power plants. So there's an efficiency part of this and there are also alternative fuel uh, approaches to this. We could burn wood rather than fossil fuels, which in theory are, is a carbon neutral uh, approach. Um, there's all kinds of renewable energy, uh, wave, uh, wind, solar, geothermal, even nuclear. All those are low to zero carbon emission schemes. So certainly there's been a large interest in, in weaning ourselves from, from fossil fuels to these uh, renewable low carbon emission sources as a CO2 reduction, CO2 emissions reduction strategy. So all of those play into this emissions reduction effort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you look at the big picture, I mean, I think you were one of the first people I heard uh, really expressing skepticism about the, the, the national and international efforts to get a grip on carbon pollution policy. And I, I, I have to say, I, I, hope, I hope you're wrong. I hope I'm wrong in that skepticism, which I now sadly embrace. Um, but it, it, for me, that didn't come till 2018 when we had the IPCC's 1.5 degree report. It made it very clear uh, that we were—we just weren't getting there. We were going to have to do carbon removal. You were looking at this decades earlier. How did you see it before other people? <laughs> well, I'm not sure I saw it before other people. I mean, other people have been concerned for a very long time that our emission attempts at emissions reduction or simply too little and now too late. Uh, and all you have to do is look at the atmospheric CO2 record, the Keeling curve, and realize that despite all of our good intentions, all of our agreements, all of, uh, all of the discussion and all of the concern, the bottom line is we've utterly failed to reduce our emissions. And we're now uh, uh, more or less on the same trend we were 10, 20, 30 years ago. And so... Uh, that is is a real failure. And uh, of course, we know even more now about what the consequences are. And in fact, we're living it right now. Uh, you know, the forest fires, uh, sea level rise, uh, a tundra melting, the ice caps melting. Uh, you know, we're living it right now. We're, we're in a catastrophe right now. And this whole idea of... Um, you know, we're, we're going to be okay until 1.5 degrees. Uh, no, we're, 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 we're living the catastrophe right now. And it's right, right here, right now. And we're, we're already past safe limits. And uh, so it's all hands on deck. We need to drastically reduce our emissions. And we also need to figure out how or if we can remove uh CO2 from the atmosphere in an attempt to, to actually effectively manage CO2 and manage climate and manage ocean acidification. Right. We're asking ourselves to do something that's an astonishing feat. 
uh, it's to become basically the the managers of the equilibrium chemistry of the planet uh, and its thermal properties as well. Uh, that's that's really something. That's um, a whole planet, uh, not 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 an experiment in a lab. Uh, and we got here by having an uncontrolled experiment. Uh, let's see what happens without actually bothering to ask the question. If we dump gigatons of carbon into the atmosphere every year and then just wait and see. We've launched an unconscious experiment. Now we have to reverse it. It's, um, so to, to, you, to, to, to the work here, how much of the, the work of mitigating carbon pollution, both reducing it and capturing it, and, and putting it away, removing it. How much of that work is going to have to be done, do you think, maybe by the ocean? Well, uh, let's say that at least some of it can be done by the ocean. And we know that because the ocean is already playing a big role in removing atmospheric CO2. As I said earlier, that the Earth naturally consumes actually about half of our emissions uh, each year. And it's roughly... Uh, divided between car land uptake and ocean uptake. Actually, the land might be a little larger. But both of those uh, environments uh, through natural processes consume CO2. So there, the, the ocean is already playing a role. The downside in the, with the ocean part here is that um, because the partial pressure of CO2 in the air is now higher on average than in the ocean, that gradient and pressure drive passively drive CO2 into the ocean. And once it's in there, it hydrates to form an acid, uh, carbonic acid. So uh, while the ocean is beneficially absorbing this CO2 out of the atmosphere, it's also acidifying the, atmosphere, the, uh, the ocean. And this is causing a huge uh, chemical change in the ocean. And of course, uh, Biology and chemistry is very sensitive to pH, to the acidity of a solution in which it exists. And so um, we've acidified the ocean. We've increased the acidity there on average in the surface ocean by 30 or 40 percent. And this is a big deal. And so if you're interested in, you know, ocean conservation and preserving the ocean, uh, we have got to uh, first of all, stop acidifying the ocean and then try to remediate uh, uh, areas that have been impacted by the acidity, uh, not to mention the, the warming that has happened to the ocean as well. Right. So the two chemical components of that, uh, reducing the acidification and remediating it uh, where it's already bad, those potentially could be addressed by this kind of clever use of a counterintuitive idea. I mean, I, I, I think for... For most people who first hear of this, there is this kind of anxious thought that uh, maybe the ocean's got enough carbon going into it. Why put more in? But you've actually, you and others, have been investigating options that look like maybe there's a, a way to put it away and keep it out of circulation where it does acidify and mess things up. And I wonder if you can talk about why that works. Okay. Well, yeah, it's... Uh... Well, in its simplest form, it's really a, a chemical antacid. We, I mean, when we have an acid stomach, we take uh, TOMS, which is calcium carbonate, which is a, an alkaline substance to neutralize that acid. So 
by analogy, uh, if our ocean is acidified, then in theory we can add an antacid in the form of some alkaline material to counter that acid, uh, that acidity. And it turns out that one of the alkaline materials we can add it, it actually is a form of carbon. It's it's bicarbonate and carbonates, which are already you know the most abundant form of carbon on the Earth's surface. So by adding more of this uh, to the ocean, we, we're simply adding a really a small quantity to what's already there, but also helping to counter the acidification that's happening and also providing a long-term way of storing that carbon. And in our technology, we, as I said, we start with hydroxide, which is a very absorptive of, of CO2. We expose that to air by some means and we make these bicarbonates and carbonates in solution that we then put into the ocean, or we can do that reaction at hopefully actually in the ocean, just put the hydroxide in there and let the ocean absorb the CO2. And either way, we've taken uh, CO2 out of the air and we've converted it to an antacid and we put that in the ocean, both for carbon storage and to provide some antacid, uh, some buffering there to uh, prevent further acidification or to counter the acidity that's already there. Yeah. In order to identify where the guardrails for all this should be, what research is needed? I mean, obviously, uh, you and others have thought a lot about this. There's ongoing research. There's probably a lot more coming. What do we need to answer to figure out where the limits are for this activity to figure out how big it can safely get? Yeah, well, that's, that's really important question. And yes, we do need to do a lot more research on what the benefits as well as the impacts are here, because no one's, no one's really done this before. Well, I should back up and say, actually, nature does this on long timescales. What happens on long timescales is that um, because of the lot, a lot of the Earth's crust is an alkaline material, either silicate or carbonate rocks, that as the atmosphere uh, uh, CO2 increases, and as that CO2 um, equilibrates with the hydrosphere, with water, again, an, an acid is, is formed, uh, carbonic acid. And this acid is reactive with, with these geochemical bases, these silicates and carbonates. And just as in the case of hydroxide, the, the end product here are bicarbonates and carbonates that then go, go into the ocean. And that is why the ocean is so carbon rich and why it is so alkaline is because of these geochemical and chemical reactions. And just to so, clarify, it is now by maybe an order of magnitude, the world's largest carbon sink, if I'm right. It's really well, yes, we've you know eighty five ninety percent of the Earth's surface carbon is in the ocean, and it's not in biology, it's not in whales, it's not in corals, it's in dissolved inorganic carbon and seawater, mostly in the deep ocean, right? Well, of course, most of the ocean is deep ocean, so the most volume is is deep, but uh, you know on time scales of a thousand years, all of that carbon more or less equilibrates with the atmosphere. so it's it's in theory uh, uh, you know I mean in reality it's it's surface carbon. it's in communication with the atmosphere. Yeah, is it a fair expression of the idea you're exploring and others too uh, to say that 
you know, human beings came along and vastly accelerated the front end of the carbon cycle, which is lofting it up into the atmosphere. We're good at finding and burning carbon and throwing it in the air. And, and now we've got, a, 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 we've got natural systems for absorbing it, but they don't work at the scale that we've now required the earth to absorb this material. And so you're looking at how to take natural processes and goose them. Is that a fair expression? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. We're trying to enhance uh, 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 uptakes. Now it, it's you know some people it's not always just natural uptakes. There are of course completely engineered uh, processes that people are looking at to absorb CO two um, processes that are called like for example direct air capture, which is just purely a, a physical chemical thermal process for stripping CO2 out of air and making concentrated CO2. Our process is a little more nuanced. We, we have obviously some electrochemistry uh, up front, but we then use that to kind of mimic a natural geochemical process where we, we produce an alkaline mineral, if you will. It's not actually a mineral. It's probably going to be dissolved, but it could be a solid. And then uh, weather that by exposing it to air, consuming the CO2, and generating uh, alkaline products that are then put into the ocean. So uh, it's, it's kind of a mix in our case of, of technology and mimicking natural, natural processes. But the end result is more or less what nature is going to do anyway, which is, as I said, weather minerals, weather minerals with CO2 and water and make ocean alkalinity, which will happen over the next 100,000 years. The ocean will naturally become more alkaline as a consequence of our, of our CO2 emissions. Right. It just won't happen fast enough to keep the planet uh, livable for humans and everything you like. Yeah. Um, there, there's a, a set of discussions that have been going on for a long time, and, and they're, they're, they're evolving rapidly now. And I wanted to ask you to talk about this a bit. You know, for a long time, uh, much of the world's sort of climate forward community looked askance at carbon removal and carbon capture uh, because they viewed it as a kind of uh, um, moral hazard. Uh, if you give people an out, they'll take it and they won't do the real work, which, by the way, is cheaper of actually burning less fossil fuel and making less mess. Um, that, why did that change? Uh, that, that position seems to have considerably um, uh, softened. Uh, and then I want to talk about um, uh, some of the merits it retains as well. We'll get there later. But first, why did it change? Well, I'm not sure it's completely changed. It still pops up in discussions. Uh, but... Um, I think people have just realized that uh, we have passed the point where emissions reduction alone is going to save the day here. Uh, we had a chance, you know, 30 years ago to, to really launch a serious emissions reduction program that might have uh, averted the... Uh, the impacts that we now face. But those days are over, and it's clear that emissions reduction alone is just isn't going to get the job done. And just to be clear, that's true because CO2 goes into the atmosphere and stays there for a long time. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's really kind of an insidious thing. I mean, people think, well, once we stop emitting, uh, we're, you know, we're good to go. It's We've saved the day, and the Earth is, is saved. But the problem is that 
once we turn off the faucet here, uh, the CO2 stays in the air for a very long time. It, 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 actually, the warming effect of an emissions lasts for tens of thousands of years. I mean, there's a very long tapering, of course, of the of the, you know, it, it, it slowly tapers off, but the, the a warming of a, of a parcel of CO2 that, that puts, that's put into the atmosphere, that warming effect will not completely go away for tens of thousands of years. So by failing to reduce our emissions, we, uh, the CO2 level that we've now gained is going to, and its impacts are going to stay for a very long time unless we figure out a way of, of proactively now re removing or accelerating the removal of CO2 from the atmosphere. Right. Now, it's, it's very clear that there's essentially no sane person going around saying we're going to do all of this with carbon removal. Um, it, they, what people are saying instead, and I wanted to ask you to kind of explain why this is so, is we're going to need both. We're going to need to make less mess in the first place, and we're going to need to clean up our mess, uh, which is a lot more costly and complicated, but we're still going to need to do it. And uh, no more excuses to mom. I can't clean up my room. It'll break the economy. Um, you know, it, what? why is it that... that um, that we still need emission reductions so we can't slack off on that now that we have tools like the ones you're talking about. Well, it's pretty clear that uh, solving this problem by carbon dioxide removal alone is, is as you say, it's, it's generally expensive and it's hard to do. And uh, carbon dioxide, it's, it's so much simpler to reduce to cut emissions, eliminate uh, emissions, rather than to have to then go and try to remove what you've emitted from the atmosphere. It's, it's a much harder problem. So clearly we need both. We need to, to, to look at both. And um, we cannot view carbon dioxide removal as a threat to emissions reduction. It's just... Uh, <laughs> I actually, I think there's a moral hazard in in thinking that you know uh, posed by the emissions reduction thing because if we focus totally on that, then we've ignored the last bit, you know, the large chunk of removal that has to happen in order to really avert some huge impacts. So the two need to go hand in hand, and and policy need what we need is a policy that that looks at carbon atmospheric carbon management both emissions reduction and carbon dioxide removal and doesn't keep them separate. They're all part of one atmospheric CO2 management program. They should be, and that's how it should be uh, treated. It's reminiscent of the conversation about energy efficiency, where early in the process of increasing energy efficiency, a lot of people have lunged after the cheap, easy moves, which amounts to taking the low fruit off the tree and leaving the high fruit. And then you strand the high fruit because it's too expensive to get. You haven't integrated it with the low fruit. So you wind up never being able to achieve the rest of the harvest. And in this case with CO2, um, it's, it's kind of important to get it all, or at least a big, big piece of it. Well, so wait, I think you've captured something there. I wanted to ask you to talk about two areas of emerging research that kind of play in all of this and may play in very interesting ways. Um, 
One of them is the emergence of new technologies, which seem to be just coming out of the lab now for much more energy efficient splitting of water uh, as an alternative to electrolysis, which of course is this, you know, big, high energy brute force process. If you go to scale with it, it's a, you know, it's messy in its own right. Um, not to say that it doesn't work. Uh, it does. But uh, I, I've seen some, some work coming out using plasma and some work coming out using microwaves to split water. And do you see these as having potential to uh, improve these processes and, and get somewhere? Or is it just too early to know? Well, I think it's great that people are exploring all, all possibilities of how we're going to solve our energy and CO2 problems. So, uh, yes, I'm, I'm somewhat aware of some of these new emerging technologies. Uh, they seem very exciting and uh, promising. And by all means, we need to uh, support uh, scientists and engineers uh, in their efforts to explore all possible technologies that could be useful here. So yeah, I expect a lot of new, innovative, uh, revolutionary things to emerge uh, once uh, society recognizes that there's a need for this and once uh, funding is uh, is unleashed to really support the kind of R&D that we need to develop the good ideas that we know about already, as well as explore new ones that could very easily supplant the the favorite ones that are out there right now. So, I I am very much an advocate for um, uh, technology neutral uh, uh, cheerleading of all sorts of technologies that could be applied here, and uh, I think that's that's the way that we get. They get the highest capacity, lowest cost solutions is by uh, turning scientists and engineers loose and having them uh, having them figure out and explore the various possibilities. Yeah, I'm going to add a little digression here and then circle back to this other technology I want you to, to uh, talk about. But first, uh, in this area of, of what amounts to cheerleading and facilitating a conversation where everyone can learn, um, you have been hosting and uh, a listserv that I find one of the most interesting learning environments in this field I've come across. I wonder if you can talk about that. <laughs> yeah, well, Ken Caldera and I, um, uh, a few years ago, split off from another um, email listserv uh, 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 that was called Geoengineering. And at, at one point, carbon dioxide removal was lumped into geoengineering. And there was a, a lot of negative um uh, uh, things associated with that, which, you know, tr sort of equating the solar radiation management with carbon dioxide removal uh, is not really a fair comparison. They're very different technologies and do different things. So we felt that we needed to separate carbon dioxide from, from the geoengineering discussion. And so I Just intend... Just to be clear there, you're talking... Uh, solar radiation management is addressing the symptom. You're talking about addressing the root cause. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, we, a few years ago, I, I um, Ken and I uh, split off from geoengineering and I've uh, been moderating or managing the list. And uh, yeah, it's... Uh, it's um, the intent there is just to encourage discussion 
hopefully civil discussion uh, on uh, the, car the whole field of carbon dioxide removal. Not only the technology, but the governance of it, the social license, uh, the negative Im potential negative impacts, the benefits, et cetera, of, of the entire gamut of um, uh, CDR approaches. So that's uh, that's the intent of it. It's it's really grown quite dramatically, uh, both in numbers of members and the discussion. It's it's actually becoming a little <laughs> a little um, unmanageable. Uh, the, the discussions are, uh, you know, abundant, frequent, and, uh, and often well participated in. Uh, but it is a forum uh, for, for discussing this. And if people are interested, I'm happy to, to include them uh, in the discussion if people are want to join. Why don't you drop in uh, how to do that uh, so people who are interested can? Uh, I would I, I would guess that they would uh, Google carbon dioxide removal Google group, uh, and that should link you to the the website for the for the forum. And I believe there you can uh, request a membership. Uh, if you don't want to join, you can actually look at the discussion because the whole discussion there is listed on the uh, on the website, and uh, you can go through and. And pick a topic or pick a thread. And uh, in many cases, there's there's quite a long discussion that, that goes on, um, often among real experts in the area. So it is a it is a good learning tool for those who, who aren't too familiar with um, with CDR. Uh, on the other hand, it can be like a fire hose of information. There's probably way more there than most people want to learn. But uh, that's for both of those statements. <laughs> that's certainly true. Um, yeah. the, the, before we go back to this second area of technology, there's one other thing I wanted to ask you to talk about. You raised this uh, prospect that when society starts investing, uh, we'll see this wave of innovation. I think I would posit that we're beginning to see the front edge of that wave now, and uh, that we now see a bunch of money coming out of the stimulus bill, where there's more legislation pending. Can you talk about U.S. federal investment that's starting to flow into this and the, the growth of this field with all these pe this huge wave of talent starting to show up? Well, it is uh, very encouraging that uh, there is beginning to be, first of all, a recognition that carbon dioxide removal is an essential part of our, needs to be an essential part of our activity. And there, there are efforts afoot in the federal government to make this a higher profile issue to fund research in this area and to really have um, the U.S. Uh, participate in what is actually a, a, a very a, an existing and pretty active uh, community outside the U.S. The, the, in terms of funding, uh, the, the Europeans have uh, several very active programs going on in this area. Uh, so uh, hopefully uh, policy here in, the in, in our country and the funding of research will, will expand and will draw out the, uh, the real innovations that are required in this area. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I'm going to go to the second area of technology here that I thought was really interesting and very definitely interesting to a lot of people we work with on the waterfront uh, at, at my organization. You know, we know a lot of people who run boats uh, and uh, the prospect of being able to get a uh, renewable synthetic fuel someday uh, is exciting to them. 
especially if it turns out to be, you know, accessible and affordable. Can you talk about the path to get there? I know that this is something your, you know, research colleague, Heather Willauer, has done a lot of work on. Uh, I, I don't have a clear sense of the timeline for this to grow from, you know, a really cool laboratory idea into something that's in the real world. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly uh, transportation fuel, such as for shipping and boats and also land craft, is, is uh, important. We need to transition from pure fossil fuels to, you know, fuels that are less uh, CO2 emitting. And we can do that either through the synthesis of, of those fuels from biofeedstocks or maybe even just from chemical uh chemical compounds to make uh, um, low or zero emissions fuels, uh, conventional fuels. But then there's a whole um, area of unconventional fuels that uh, to be considered. And of course, one of those is hydrogen, which is what my company is is, uh, working on. As you may or may not be aware, uh, there's quite a bit of interest in the use of hydrogen as a marine fuel. And there, uh, I understand there are a number of ferries, uh, hydrogen-powered ferries that are out there. And uh, there's other shipping that's being considered for, for hydrogen fuel. Now, one advantage, of course, of our hydrogen is that it's not just carbon neutral, it's carbon negative. So if we're able to produce this in a large scale and supply it to as a transportation fuel, this could be a way of uh, drastically reducing the carbon footprint of marine transportation, and it could allow marine transportation to really <laughs> to really lead in in helping mitigate uh, our CO two problem. Of course, we can apply the same to land transport as well. Yeah. Now you're talking about direct use of hydrogen as a fuel, which suggests that the propulsion system moves from diesel basically to fuel cell and uh, it for for that to happen is a big capital investment cycle that people have to plan decades you know for and that's going to take some time um is there a shorter term option for making say a synthetic hydrogen plus carbon recombined catalytically into the kind of fuel that the navy is exploring uh, you know, could that could that actually become something on the market, or or is that just kind of a unrealistic notion? Well, it, it can be. You can make, as Heather Wilhauer and others have shown, you can make jet fuel and probably gasoline also from seawater. If you have enough energy, you basically can do anything, and and that's uh, what she's done. It's really uh, very amazing. But you need carbon and hydrogen. Once you have that, once you've stripped that from seawater, then you can operate on that and make uh, whatever compounds you want, including fuels. Of course, the issue there is the cost of doing this. This is a huge energy cost of doing this, and not to mention a dollar cost. And the reason the military is interested in this is, I'm sure, from a strategic point of view, it, it could turn out to be cheaper to make this at sea than to transport this from who knows where, you transport the fuel and resupply the ships at sea, which is a, a big deal. So uh, in the military case, they may be willing to pay the price, but I would say the use of this fuel in common marine transport is 
probably some years oh is several <laughs> more than several years away because of the of the cost now th there's some other angles that can be explored here one thing to keep in mind is that regular fossil fuel uh, transportation fuels are refined and there's a great deal of hydrogen used in refining those fuels and if you look at those fuels chemically a lot of the the molecules in there are hydrogen they're not carbon so one angle here is in the refining of these fuels why not use carbon negative hydrogen like what uh, my company is producing or hopes to produce and therefore, uh, in effect, reduce the net carbon footprint of that fuel because you've already removed CO2 from the atmosphere and generating the, the hydrogen, and therefore in net uh, significantly reduce the carbon footprint there. So in this way, you could continue to use conventional fuels. You don't have to change the infrastructure of the marine propulsion, but by modifying the fuel, by modifying the refining of those fuels, you've uh, you've significantly lowered the footprint. So that's that's one thing worth exploring. Just to, to to clarify here, what you're doing, if I hear you right, is replacing the hydrogen component in ordinary hydrocarbon fuels that people buy at the pump, uh, which is a uh, typically derived from natural gas uh, and uh, is is both not all that cheap and has a carbon consequence. You're replacing that uh, with uh, a renewable ocean-derived hydrogen that uh, is perhaps cost competitive. Uh, yes, especially if if we're going to get a carbon credit for doing this. Uh, certainly, part of the you know a big chunk of the equation here for driving this forward is that there needs to be a credit for uh, either emissions. Uh, avoided or CO2 removed from the atmosphere. And uh, if those are in place and are, are sufficient size, then the economics will work out. And there are a number of places in the world right now where there is a, a sufficient carbon credit that can really drive these technologies forward. One is here in California, the low carbon fuel standard uh, credit, which is close to $200 a ton CO2. So if you're able to avoid or consume a, a ton of CO2, you're going to get $200. And uh, we believe our process is significantly less expensive than $200. So we can actually make this, uh, hopefully make it uh, competitive with other sources of fuel, other sources of hydrogen. Now, if I recall right, in 2018, you and Heather Willauer published a paper on negative emissions hydrogen. And you had a, a wide range of potential costs for the hydrogen you can produce with this method, but or these methods, you had more than one. But the uh, the costs range, I recall, went from about nine bucks a ton um, for removal of, of carbon to around a hundred. Am I remembering that right? Um. Yes, you are, uh, but there's been a little modification there. There was, there was a little error actually in that calculation where we're a little too, we, little, we underestimated the, the actual cost, but it, it does range from tens of dollars a ton up to as expensive as you want, uh, depending on the cost of the electricity you're using to run the process. There are, there are a number of inputs to the system 
where the cost of those inputs play a big role in, in the economics. But we think that, uh, in general, uh, a, a good number to put on the, on the cost of removing carbon from the atmosphere using this method is probably in the area of like $50 to $100 a ton CO2. We could probably do it for less than that if we have really cheap electricity and we have really high value of our hydrogen. That's another thing that factors in is the what mar, what's the market value of the hydrogen. But uh, I'd, I'd say $50 to $100 a ton CO2 is what we're looking at for the cost of, of removing CO2 from the atmosphere. So we need a a carbon credit that's equal to that or greater than that to really have the whole process make economic sense. Yeah, yeah. So that puts you, if I understand right, kind of in the in the you know in with the pack. There's a there's a yes. bunch of options yes. in that range. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's one last piece that a lot of people talk about in the in the ocean, and it's this need for what some people call social license. That term, I think, is a little simplistic. Uh, but you know they're both they're legal, they're institutional, and there are social hurdles because the ocean is not an empty wilderness. It's a place that people use. Some of them have been using it for thousands of years. Some of them have treaty rights to it. Some of them have jurisdiction. Um, it's a complicated zone, and it's public trust resource. It's not owned by someone. So it, 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 the the rules of access and use are different and uh, bumpy. Um, what do you in this? You can tell me if this is out of your lane. Uh, feel free. But what do you think it'll take to develop a shared vision for how to develop uh, the ocean's potential to be a major climate solution, given the complexity of its regulation, its institutional, its social use, all of that? Well, I think it's going to take uh, first of all some research showing showing the benefits as well as the impacts of doing, performing the kind of uh, technology or using the kind of technology I'm talking about in the ocean. There's been very little study to really look at the benefits and impacts here. And certainly a large part of what we're doing as a company is to, to, to launch that research we're going to be working with the University of Dalhousie um, in Halifax in a fairly large-scale lab and ocean-based study looking at the, again, the benefits and impacts of adding alkalinity to the ocean. So that's a, that's a big part of this social license. Most of the concern here, and it's justified, is that we've never done this, uh, this kind of action before. No one's actually added an antacid to the ocean. Actually, there's one study that I'm aware of that's done this on the Great Barrier Reef in an attempt to try to counter ocean acidification. And indeed, they were able to do that. They were able to show that there was a real benefit to the calcification rate of corals uh, by the addition of sodium hydroxide. So uh, that study and many more are needed in order for us to gain the social license to do this. And certainly we need we need to do the research first before doing this at any scale. And, and we have to, our intent here is to help the ocean and to help the planet not to hurt it. Hurt it. And we need to make sure that that's the case in, in applying this technology. So this is the kind of work that helps us figure out where the guardrails belong. And uh, if we don't do it, we won't know. 
Exactly. And we have, you know, I feel that we should do it. And at the end of the day, if the impacts outweigh the benefits, then okay. But uh, at least theory and experience suggests that this, this is going to be a positive thing, but we need to prove that. It needs to be proven and we need to, to earn that social license to do it. Right. Well said. Dr. Greg Rao from the University of California, Santa Cruz, formerly Liverpool, sorry, Livermore, uh, the Lawrence Livermore Lab, uh, and now uh, co-founder, if I have that right, of Planetary Hydrogen. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks, Brad. <laughs>